You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. You want to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in both Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3 today. We're not going to take the time to read through these chapters as we've done in the past just because we've got a lot that I want to cover today. I actually had to change my font size to a smaller size to get it all on one sheet today. So we're going to be mindful of that, and we're going to move quickly to make sure that we cover everything that I believe the Lord has for us uh, this morning. We began to discuss this concept a little bit in our discussion today, um, but there's some different perspectives out there, some different systems out there in regards to men and women and their equality and their value and, and, and their differences. And I want to give you a couple of those this morning so that you can understand what what we mean and what others mean when these terms get used, the first one would be chauvinism. Chauvinism would be the concept where men and women have different worth, with one being superior to the other. Okay, So chauvinism would say that men and women are different and that they are valuable in a different way. That, that one has more value than the other. So you could have male chauvinism or female chauvinism. Okay? Most people aren't going to verbalize that they view it this way, right? Like not many people, some that you come in contact with maybe, but not most are going to say that they believe this, that they really believe that men are better than women or vice versa. Now they'll act that way. They'll demonstrate that they believe that with their actions, but most won't verbally say that, okay? But chauvinism is the perspective where men and women have intrinsically different worth, with one being superior to the other. The second uh, concept, the second um, system would be egalitarianism. That's E-G-A-L-I-T-E-G-A-L-I-T-A-R-I-A-N-I-S-M. Egalitarianism. Okay? Sounds like what it means. Men and women should share identical authority and responsibilities because they're equal. Egalitarianism says men and women should share identical authority and responsibilities because they are equal. Specifically, we would see this in marriage, in religion, in society. That men and women are not only equal in value, equal in worth, but they're equal in responsibility, equal in authority. There should be no dividing lines. There should be no differences. And the last system, the system that our church would fall into, is complementarianism. That's C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T-A. R-I-A-N-I-S-M, complementarianism. That'll probably be the last time we say it today because you have to really think about it when you say it. Um, Men and women are equal in value but different in their roles. Men and women are equal in value, but they have different roles. They have complementary roles in marriage, religion, and society. So egalitarianism, men and women are so equal, there's really no differences between the two beyond biological differences. Complementarianism would say that they are equal in value. There's not one that's better than the other, but they are different in the roles and the responsibilities that God has given to them. Okay? What, we, what, we're, what we're living in right now is a society that says there's really no difference in our genders. That, 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 that not only from an egalitarian perspective in the church, but just in society as a whole. That men and women are virtually equal and virtually interchangeable to the point that if you want to switch, you can. Right? That's becoming more and more common, more and more accepted, less and less surprising within our culture today, that gender is so interchangeable that that people are allowed to now change if they want to, that that's the type of society that we're living in. There's such a blurred, equal perspective within it that it's almost losing completely its distinction. 
And yet what we find in Scripture is that our sexuality is how we give glory to God. It's how we image God. Right? The Bible says that our bodies are how we put on display God's glory. Right? So our bodies, and we believe here that our bodies are part of who we are. Right? Like we're not just a soul that will spend eternity with God one day. Right? Our loved ones that have gone on before us are not in their eternal state. They anxiously await the day that Jesus comes back the second time to give us new bodies because our bodies are part of who we are. It's how God created us. And God gave us bodies to glorify him. And he gave some of us female bodies and some of us male bodies to do so. Right? We're not uh, asexual beings where we're just interchangeable that we all do the same thing. God created some of us male, some of us female, gave us male bodies, female bodies for the purpose of glorifying God, imaging him. And our, our, our gender is not tied to whether we're married or not married, right? A lot of the stuff that we're going to talk about today gets played out in marriage, but we don't become male or female, obviously, when we get married, right? Those that are not married in here are just as much female as those that are. Those that do not have children in here are just as much female as those that do. The men that are single in here are just as much male as those that have a family to be responsible for in comparison to those that don't, right? So our, our gender is not tied to marriage, while a lot of what we talk about today does get played out in marriage. These are God-given responsibilities and abilities within our gender. Titus 2 talks about it. Titus 2 talks about learning how to be male and learning how to be female. And within the church, we're to get our guidance and, and instruction from older men and older women. Why it's so important that that everyone is playing their part and doing their job in the church. That we need older men and older women teaching younger men and younger women how to be godly men and women. The, the model laid out for us in Titus 2. And it is something that's learned, right? So, so we're born male and female, but we don't automatically become biblical men and biblical women. As Solomon was was by the, the, the deathbed of his father, his father told him to play the part of a man, to act like a man. The indication being that he didn't have to, right? Biologically, he was a male, but his behavior wouldn't necessarily line up with being a male. And his father told him to make sure that it did. Make sure that your behavior matches what biology says about you. Play the part of a man. And the same would be true for the female, to play the part of a woman. We see our, our, our gender through a couple of different avenues this morning. Number one, we see it understanding our gender through creation. Understanding gender through creation. All right, our gender is seen in biology. Obviously, our, 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 uh, our makeup, our, our body parts define us as male and female. But we also see it from a sociology standpoint, right? 1 Corinthians 11 is one of those passages that talks about cultural norms, for what a male looks like and what a female looks like. Now we said that that's being blurred, right? Before you could say that a that a woman had had these character traits, right? She she wore a dress, she had long hair, she wore makeup. Like that that's kind of a, an older historical perspective. We've seen some of that shift. There's still cultural distinctions even though there's blurred aspects. Everybody that walked in here this morning, I can easily identify you as either a male or a female based on how you present yourself. Sociology tells us that. But then there's also a, a concept of psychology, what we perceive ourselves to be, right? So going back to the AJ analogy, AJ, is so-and-so a boy or a girl? A boy. AJ, are you a boy or a girl? AJ knows what he is. He can perceive that. He can, he can determine that by everything around him. He can look at himself and say, I'm obviously a male. I'm obviously a boy. Understanding gender through creation. First of all, what we see here is that God creates equally different throughout his creation. Going back to Genesis 1, God creates equally different. Look at the, the equally different creations that God has in Genesis 1. He creates light and darkness. He creates sky and ground. He creates wet land and dry land. He creates sun. He creates moon. He creates 
swimmers. He creates flyers, right? He, he separates the different types of animals. He creates male and he creates female. That, that's the pattern that God uses in his creation. He creates things equal, right? The sun and the moon are, are both necessary for our survival. They're both necessary to what we experience here on this planet, but they're different. They have different purposes, different roles. We don't downplay the importance of the moon and say that, well, the sun's far better than the moon. We need both. We need both. We need both wetland and dry land. Right? None of us wants to live on a boat for the rest of our life, but we do enjoy going out on boats. Maybe some of you would enjoy living on a boat for the rest of your life. I don't know. Um, we need both. The same is true for male and female. God creates them equal. They're both necessary, both important, right? Creation's not complete without the other. God says that. It's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for man to be without a female. Right? I think there's a reason that God didn't just create an earth of males, right? As much as I love going down to Chris Henson's cabin and spending a few days with the boys, there's an element that's missing long-term in that setting, right? Like, it gets very uh, unhomey very quickly for whatever reason with the lack of a female presence there. God is very good in that he didn't just create a planet of boys or a planet of girls, that he created us together with different giftings, different abilities, so that we, we maximize each other's strengths, we encourage each other's weaknesses for his glory, for his honor. God creates equally different. Secondly, God creates man with a distinct position. God creates man with a distinct position, and we're going to see that God creates woman with a distinct role. God creates man with a distinct position. We're going to call that position the initiator. The initiator. And that's important because I want to differentiate between man having the responsibility to do everything in a marital relationship. When we talk about a man leading, it's not that man makes all the decisions. It's not that man always gets his way. It's that man takes responsibility to initiate in the relationship. It's when man determines and sees and foresees problems and issues and initiates solutions. There should always be conversation between a husband and a wife. There should always be a working together within the relationship. But the primary responsibility for the initiating, the initiating of, hey, now that we live in a new area, we need to be going to a church, right? Now that we live in a new area, we need to be getting up on a Sunday morning to fellowship with other believers. As a family, we need to be in prayer together as a family. That should be initiated by the husband. He's the initiator. Man is created first to establish this position of leadership. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. I think God's very intentional in how chapter 2 plays out. Chapter 2 is necessary. He already told us about man and woman in chapter 1. Chapter 2 gives us the details. It's a, it's a further description of chapter 1. And I think it's a, it's a necessary description because it tells us some really important things about how God's designed things. That he designed it where man was created first and woman wasn't created at the same time. If you just read chapter 1, you'd say, oh, God created man and woman together at the same time. What we find in chapter 2 is that they're, they're separated in their creation timeline. We've already said that God creates woman separately, creates that need inside man. He sees all the animals, sees that he doesn't have a complement to him. He sees a need, sees that God provides that need. But man is created first to establish a position of leadership. But it's important to understand for our men in this church that we are always always, always under leadership ourselves. right? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9 reminds us. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Same idea in Colossians 4.1. Colossians 
Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Even an individual, even a male who assumes leadership within his family, even the male who is the boss at his work, even the male who is the boss of his country, even the male who ascends to the highest position of authority on this earth still answers to the master in heaven. So when we talk about the initiator, the leadership responsibilities placed on man, it's important that we understand that he's always under the leadership of this universe. That in no way, in any way, is he ever permitted to take leadership to the point where he is making decisions without submitting to the leader above him. I believe we're to model as men, we're to model, especially for those of us with sons, but for all men in our church, there are younger men within our church, we're to model what it looks like to submit to leadership. right? Like I want to be the best model possible for AJ, that AJ understands how to submit to my leadership based on how he sees me submitting to the leadership or the, the, the authority of our government. Right? I want him to see the way that I, that I communicate and talk about policemen. That is done in a God-honoring way where he sees myself submitted to leadership that's placed over me. That he sees me, if I'm ever in a situation where I'm not the lead pastor of a church, that he sees me submitted to the elder leadership of a church. But that AJ also recognizes that even as the leadership of this church, that I place myself in accountability with people outside of our church so that I never lose sight of the fact that as a leader, I'm still submitted to higher leadership above me. Man is the initiator. Man is given leadership responsibilities but it never removes his responsibility to be under leadership. Secondly, man is the title given to the human race, emphasizing his leadership. When we skip ahead to Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. That in no way is meant to communicate that that man is better than woman or that man is more valuable than woman. What it does indicate to us is that man has a responsibility. That the, the, the naming of the human race as man emphasizes man's leadership over the human race. Man is established as the provider and the protector of the family. In Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? These instructions, these plans, these responsibilities are given to man before woman is created. The responsibility to work the garden, to keep the garden, the primary job of doing that was given to Adam. Now, woman's brought into the picture to complement that effort, to, to assist in that effort, to help in that effort. But the primary task, the primary job was given to Adam here before Eve was created. Comforting, too, to know that in Deuteronomy ten eighteen, God serves as the great provider when the male is absent in a relationship. In Deuteronomy 10, 18, this is just God's goodness and provision. It says, he, talking about God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. It's God who intercedes when that male leadership is absent. And it's meant to be good leadership. It's meant to be a good gift. Man is specifically called to work here as the provider and the protector. God is, or God has called man to work the garden and to keep the garden. Now we've talked about these two aspects already a little bit, but I want to, to encourage all of the men in our church, both married and non-married, that you have a responsibility to, to work. But the picture here is that you have a responsibility to, to put good things into practice. Remember, the earth was, was not cultivated, was not bringing forth the maximum amount of good that it could until man was created. Man was created to use the resources of the earth and basically take them and create good things. We have that responsibility within our workplaces. Again, you may be in a situation where your work feels very mundane and very non-eternally significant. 
But even within that work environment, you have the responsibility to create good practices, to create good habits, to create a good environment. That's part of God's responsibility given to you, that you work the garden, that you work it well, that you create good within that environment. And then secondly, you keep it. You keep it. The idea there is that you protect the progress. You protect the good progress that's already there. You view it as your garden to protect. You guard it and you protect the progress while also creating additional good. That's the picture here given to Adam, the responsibilities given to Adam. Man is called to cherish the woman. We're going to see as woman is created that God calls Adam to cherish her as a truly good gift. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. You know what that last part means? Your prayers may not be hindered? That, that's, not, that's not beating around the bush there. But what Peter is saying is that if the male and the female that are married, if the man is not owning up to his covenantal obligations in that marriage, then he has no prerogative to come to God in prayer asking for God to honor covenantal obligations with him. He says, you make sure that you're honoring your wife and serving your wife and, and doing what you're supposed to do as a male in that relationship so that your prayers aren't hindered with your father, with your God. There's a big responsibility placed on the man there, that he is fulfilling what he's supposed to be fulfilling in his covenant with a woman. He's to cherish that woman in a way that it doesn't hinder his relationship with God. Man has been placed in gardens all around the world, and gardens always attract serpents. We have a responsibility to protect our gardens. I was teaching our seventh grade chapel recently, and we were talking about some of these concepts, and I, and I challenged our boys. I said, look, I am tired. I am tired of the stuff that's happening in the locker rooms. I'm tired of the stuff that's happening outside of teacher supervision. And I challenged our boys. I said, boys, you have been created as male. You have been created as, as men of God. And you have been created to protect this seventh grade here at Trinity. And when you see inappropriate behavior happening, inappropriate language happening, you have a responsibility to step up and speak to it and protect this area. God has given it to you right now. And I believe that. I believe that as, as men, we have a responsibility to protect the environments that God has put us in. Next, God creates woman with a distinct role. That role we'll call the responder. The responder. And we're going to see the value that's connected here to woman. And, and I want to confess that I've made this mistake before. And I was so encouraged. Where is Dave not here today? Dave's in nursery. Dave posted a really cool article a couple of weeks back on the city. I don't remember what the rest of the article said because I remember this one thing that was there that really resonated with me. It talked about how a woman's value should never be tied to her relationship to a man. And I've made the mistake before in counseling young men in regards to uh, sexual purity. I've challenged them and told them, I said, you need to view that woman as a, as a father's daughter. Somebody, somebody, that's somebody's daughter or that's somebody's future wife. As though that woman should be viewed from a pure standpoint because she belongs to a man or will belong to a man somewhere down the road. And that's an inappropriate view. And I apologize if I've ever used that concept with you because I was really challenged by that. That a woman demands to be cherished and to be loved and to be kept pure regardless of any connection with a man. Regardless of any connection with a man, because when her father dies and if she remains single for the rest of her life, we have an obligation to keep her pure men, regardless of any ties that she has with, with a man. That she has value because she's created in the image of God. That she's created in the image of God. Woman possesses great value and then she completes the human race. Genesis 2, 18 through 20. In no way does does God giving leadership responsibilities and accountability to the male aspect of the race diminish the value of the woman in any way? She completes the human race according to God. Verse 18 of Genesis 2, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. God says, 
What we have here is not the long-term solution. The image of God here on this earth would be incomplete without female. This earth needs the women that God creates. And that, that elevates woman to the highest value. In no way is her value diminished in any way because she's created to respond to man. Because her existence is absolutely necessary. Genesis 1 says God creates a male and female in the image of God. That both are necessary for God's image to be displayed properly here on this earth. Woman possesses great value in that she is instrumental to the continuation of the human race. Right? The, the, the mandate there is for us to be fruitful and multiply. And while, while man obviously plays a role in the reproduction process, the bulk of it falls upon the woman, right? The bulk of it falls upon the woman. The woman carries the baby for the nine months. The woman bears the pain of the childbirth. And oftentimes, many times, the woman is responsible for the bulk of the raising of that child from a time standpoint, right? If we were to compare and contrast, most of the time the mom spends more quantity time with the children than the father does, depending on the arrangement, depending on the relationship at home. The woman bears a huge responsibility and a huge privilege in the continuation of the human race. Woman was created for man to complement him. Back in Genesis 2.18, the Lord said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. She's made to complement man. She's not a duplicate, but a complement. And the word actually carries the idea of filling an area that is lacking. Which also brings man back down from any pedestal that he'd like to put himself upon. That, that she fills areas that are lacking with how God created us. And he designed it that way. He designed it where we need woman. Where we need her giftings and her abilities to image God properly. And it also means that woman needs man, right? If she's a helper, she needs something or someone to help. Don't we all hate showing up in a situation where we're there to help, and yet there's no guidance or direction about how to help? Right? Like, we have to battle that at times with working with the, the Sonoy people in the events. Because we show up ready to work, and a lot of times it's disorganized, and we're trying to, to work with them and trying to understand how we can help them. There's nothing more frustrating than showing up ready to serve, ready to help, and there's no guidance and no direction. But that's how God creates woman. God creates woman, and she's there to help. She's ready to show up and ready to complement and ready to do what's necessary to fill the areas that are lacking. Which, again, supposes the fact that the man is there to initiate and to lead so that woman has something to help and something to follow. Both working together for God's glory. Both absolutely necessary. Both equally valuable, but both with different roles to play. Woman was created from man to show her dependence upon him. Right? Back in verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Woman understands her dependence upon man because she comes from man. And then woman is named by man to show his responsibility over the woman. Genesis 2:23. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. We talked about how naming things in Genesis shows authority and responsibility. And again, that word authority carries a negative connotation too oftentimes in our society and culture. But by giving woman to man, man assumes the responsibility of caring and protecting, guiding and leading. That's something that God has placed upon his shoulders. Two questions that I want to answer in this section. Question number one, how are we equal? So I told you we're equal, but I believe we're different. How are we equal? Answer to that. We both find our source in God. We both find our source in God. So, so God creates man out of the dust of the ground, forms him, breathes life into him, but does the exact same thing for woman, right? As, as man is called to create and to accomplish and to build and to do things, in no way does God give man the privilege of building a woman or creating a woman. Because in that way, she becomes his creation, his object, his possession. And I believe God very sovereignly steps in and says, I'm going to show you that I provide life to the woman, that she is a gift, not something that you have created, Adam. 
Not something that you have earned, Adam. Not something that you have generated. We find our source in God. We're both created in God's image. Genesis 1 makes that clear. We're both morally responsible to God. Now we're going to see that man bears the responsibility of what happens at the fall. But all throughout the New Testament, we have instructions given to men and instructions given to women, which implies gender distinction. God tells men to do certain things. God tells women to do certain things. There's responsibilities given to both. There's commands given to both. We're both morally responsible to God. Both have equal value in the eyes of God. Both have the same salvation made available to them. In Galatians chapter 3, any gender distinctions that we would like to carry over into salvation completely fall apart with Paul's instructions in Galatians 3. In verse 24, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I personally believe we're still going to be male and female when, when Christ comes back and gives us new bodies. I don't think we, we change our sexuality. I believe what's being communicated here is that any distinctions by race, any distinctions by economic status, any distinctions by gender all fall apart when we talk about salvation. That we all reap the same benefits of salvation, that it's all made available in the same way, no matter what type of background you come from. We're equal in our salvation. How are we different, though? How are we different? And I told you earlier, our differences bring out the strengths in the other. I believe God's created us that way, where we're different, and by being different, it it reveals how we're strong. It reveals how we're strong. How are we different? First off, let me stress that like the Trinity, we possess different roles to complete that when done together result in God's glory. That's That's really the best way to think about this. The best way to think about it is in terms of the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We're told in the Bible that of the Trinity, those three do different things, right? I think it's incorrect to say that God the Father died on the cross for our sins. God the Son did. Jesus Christ did. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. That's part of the purpose of the Holy Spirit coming, Jesus said, to convict us of our sin, to bring us to the knowledge of the light. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're not sealed with God the Father. That there's, there's distinctions in, in what the Trinity does. None of us would say that the Holy Spirit is inferior to God the Father. right? We would believe that within the Trinity they are co-equal, they are co-valuable, they are co-responsible for everything that takes place. And yet scripture says they have different roles to carry out. Jesus came to live a perfect life. Jesus came to die on the cross, not the Holy Spirit. So in the same way, God creates male and female equally valuable, and yet they have different roles to accomplish. Different roles to accomplish. So we're different in our roles. And yet sometimes there's overlap. In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul is talking about his church plant. And he says, sometimes I treat you like a mom, like I nurture you like a mother. And then other times he says, I speak to you like a father. So even in how we play out as male and female, there's times where we overlap and we function like the other. We, 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 we take some of those strengths and we exhibit those as well within our gender. But overall, we have different giftings that God has bestowed upon us. Secondly, we understand gender through the fall. We understand gender through the fall. Three points I want to make here. There's, there's first of all, gender crisis in the temptation. Gender crisis in the temptation. We're going we're gonna to spend more time in Genesis 3 than what we do today, but we're going to be in Genesis 3 now as we look at the fall. There's some gender crisis here. First of all, man fails in his role to initiate, forcing the woman to take the lead. In Genesis 3, verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
serpent said to the woman, you'll not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Man fails to initiate here. He fails to to provide the, the leadership that, that he should have provided here, forcing woman to take the lead. So, so the serpent shows up, Satan shows up in the garden, and I told you earlier, he goes right after gender. He attacks the gender right from the very beginning. It says that he's crafty, that he's knowledgeable. We know Satan is not, not ignorant and dumb, that he's wise. He's wise and crafty in his deceit. So I believe absolutely that Satan understood that God had set up male and female that he had set him up as husband and wife, and he had set him up to function in a certain way, and he goes in to deviate from that. He says, I'll speak to the woman. I'll speak to the woman. While, while man was placed in the garden first, man was placed with the responsibility to protect it, Satan comes in and, and, and begins to converse with the woman. And the Bible later tells us that Adam is with her. He's with her, and he sits back passively, sits back passively and lets all this unfold in no way tries to intervene and clarify the false doctrine that's being presented to his wife. This would be the equivalent of a man sitting on his couch while a woman has interaction with, with, with Mormon missionaries or Jehovah's Witness missionaries, never gets up to intervene, allows the woman to come in and say, hey, I think we should convert to this religion. He says, okay, let's do it. That, that's what we ultimately have here. Satan shows up and says, you're following the wrong God. You should be God. You're following the wrong person. And she's deceived, and Adam does absolutely nothing to protect. He does nothing to initiate a change here in this, in, in this situation. He fails to protect, allowing sin to enter the garden. This was what God had tasked him to do, to keep it, to protect the progress. Remember, God has created a good environment. Adam's supposed to make it better. Adam's supposed to cultivate it and make it a greater situation because God has designed it that way. And yet Adam allows it to regress. He doesn't keep it. He's not working anything good here. He's just sitting passively. He fails in his role to protect. He fails in his role to lead, falling into sin himself. When Eve offers it to him, he partakes of it. Now, I've heard commentators say that this is a, this is a step by Adam to say, you know what, I love my woman too much to not participate with her, that that if I don't eat of it, I'm going to be separated from her. And so it became a choice between do I love God or do I love my woman? That may be the case. But what's startling is how quickly that changes. When we go to the second point, gender emphasis in the confrontation. So we saw gender crisis in the temptation. Man and woman functioning differently than they were created to. Then we see a gender emphasis in how God confronts them. God confronts the man showing who he views as ultimately responsible here. When we move to verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which, which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. You know, what, you know what's really going on right here? God confronts Adam, shows that he views Adam as responsible. And we see the other extreme of Adam here. We saw the passive Adam. We saw a passive man when he sat back and did nothing. And as men now, fallen men, we struggle with being passive. We struggle with being lazy. We struggle with sitting back and not initiating and doing the things that God's called us to do. We struggle with taking the easy way out. But what we see here now when God confronts is we see the other extreme. We see the abusive extreme, I believe. Because Adam is very aware that God said, if you eat of the tree, you'll die. And when God confronts him, Adam says, it was her. If you want to do anything, you kill my wife. And that's the extreme abusive situation that many women have to get rescued from. A man who is so intent with what his needs are and his perspective and his selfishness that he would turn on his wife. 
and be abusive towards her. And this is where everything begins to break down for the male race. And everybody in here that, that is male, I believe, is prone to struggle in one of these areas, and we have to fight against that old man. The old man has been taken off of us if we're Christians. And as we, as we, as we strive to be sanctified and glorified and become like Christ, we are prone to fall back into our old habits, and it's in one of these two areas. Passive or abusive. And we see Adam exhibit both within a short time frame. So it may be that, 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 that men in here struggle with both. Because Adam is very clear here that, that I, I'm all over the place. I'm passive and I'm abusive. And he says, kill my wife. She's responsible. And God rebukes the man showing who was entrusted to lead. In verse 17 of Genesis 3. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. The indication here is that he should not have listened to the voice of his wife, that he should not have yielded to her leadership, that he should have been leading in that situation. And then further on, we see that God views man as responsible for the sin of all mankind. Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15. Both passages say that sin that has entered into this world entered through the sin of Adam, entered through the sin of man. That man is held responsible. Because while we say that Eve sinned first, I really believe that Adam sinned first by not being the protector that he was called to be. And while it was not an, a, a sinful act of commission where Adam didn't do anything necessarily sinful, it was the fact that he didn't do anything that was sinful. That he dropped the ball on what God had called him to do and what God had called him to be. And then lastly in this section, gender distinction and the punishment. So we see gender crisis, Satan attacks gender. We see gender emphasis by God when he confronts Adam. And then we see God gender dividing or gender distinction in the punishment. God's curses are consistent yet unique to man and woman. Showing that there's equality in moral responsibility, but difference in gender responsibility. Do you see that? Both of them get punishment. Both of them are held accountable for their actions, but they're punished differently. It shows that they're equal, right? Eve doesn't get off the hook because she's the responder and, and Adam failed to lead. And so Adam gets punished and gets slapped on the wrist and, and Eve doesn't get anything. They're both held accountable because they're both equally responsible. But they're equally responsible yet different in their responsibilities, and God punishes them differently. And I believe God punished them based on their normal places in life. Adam as the normal supporter of the family, Eve as the normal caretaker for the children. Man is cursed in his role of leader and family provider. Verse 17, and he said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, eaten of the tree, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Right? Both of them are punished with pain. Woman gets pain in childbirth. The man gets pain in his work. That work becomes difficult. The work that was supposed to be satisfying and fulfilling becomes difficult for him. His leadership is ultimately to be rejected. Right? Like the, he's supposed to lead the earth. He's supposed to cultivate the earth. He's supposed to take care of the earth. God says the earth's going to reject you now. You're going to have to fight against the earth. And when, when it plays out with the woman, with her punishment, we also find that the woman is going to reject his leadership. That while woman was created to just naturally respond, that it was supposed to be like a dance with the man leading and the woman following this beautiful picture, there's going to be hiccups. There's going to be struggles. That his leadership is going to ultimately be rejected and questioned, and he's going to have to fight to be the man that God's called him to be. Man mustn't fight now against being passive and being a tyrant. In one of the books that I was reading, the author said, The greatest threat to your family is your own sin and rebellion. Listen to what he said. I used to think that if a man came into my house to attack my wife, I would certainly stand up to him. But then I came to realize that the man who enters my house and assaults my wife every day is me. Through my anger, my harsh words, my complaints, and my indifference. 
The author says the biggest threat to my family is not some intruder. It's me. It's me who enters the house every single day, comes from work where it's been painful and difficult and hard. And if I come in passive or as a tyrant, I'm the biggest threat to my family. The author says we have a responsibility to kill. We have a responsibility to kill the dragon that lurks in our own heart. We're the biggest threat to our family as men. We have to kill the old man of being passive or being a tyrant. Woman is cursed in her role as a childbearer and as a male helper. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. This isn't just in the delivery process. This is in the whole process of a, of a woman's fertility. That There's, there's pain. There's, there's difficulty. There's aspects that a woman would not desire, would not to choose to have to bear. Even in raising her children, there's pain in the, in the, in the aspect of childbirth. Raising her children to see them not do the things that she desires for them to do. There's pain in that process because of the sin that was chosen. Woman must, not, must fight now against being a leader and being manipulative. It says, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That there's a, an unhealthy perspective in the woman now as a sinful woman. That, that she desires to do what Eve did and to take the initiative and to lead. She desires that and yet she's called to submit. She's called to submit. We don't see any instructions here about Eve being called to submit to Adam. Why? Because she would have naturally done that in her creation. That's what she was created to be. That's what she was created to do. And yet now... Now we have to have verses that call the, the, the woman, call the wife to submit to her husband because everything inside of her says not to. I'm going to manipulate him. I'm going to, I'm going to rule through manipulation or I'm just going to try to seize control of the situation. That's what she's cursed with. That's what she has to overcome. The implication here is that our struggle with the old man is a fight against our gender distortions. Satan's plan is to distort the image of God by attacking our understanding and application of gender. The good news is that the gospel restores us to biblical manhood and womanhood. I want you guys to think intentionally. When we read passages in the New Testament that say, put off the old man, put on the new man, that it's not just in general terms about being obedient to God and not being obedient to self. There's specific ways that this looks. These curses get carried down. It wasn't just that Adam and Eve were cursed with this. We're all cursed with sin, but as males, we're cursed in a certain way. As females, we're cursed in a certain way. And we're called to overcome those curses through the power of Jesus Christ. Because of the gospel, God is recreating new creations, right? We're new creations. The Holy Spirit's living inside of us, and God is changing us. And not just changing us in general terms where we love each other more and we serve each other more, but in specific ways. That as men, we're, we're being rescued from being passive and we're being rescued from being overly aggressive. That we're timid with the people that we're, that we're in relationship with in a way that is healthy. Where we're caring and nurturing. That we're understanding. And that we initiate and we lead. We overcome that as women. That, that we move away from, from the stereotypes of, of, of negativity towards women. That we, we willingly submit to the leadership placed over us. That we set aside any agendas that we have, any agendas that society says that we should have, and we submit for the glory of God to the role that he has called us to play as a complement to the males that have been placed in, in her life. Setting aside any attempts to manipulate, any, any attempts to seize control, but to, to, to complement and to help to, to fill the areas that are lacking with the beautiful gifts and abilities that God has given to you. Lastly, we understand gender through the church. We understand gender through the church. First of all, through the model of Jesus, real quick, Jesus' example. He honored, taught, and loved women and used them as a vital part of his ministry. However, he never elevated them to the highest level of leadership within his, within his ministry. He chose men for the senior leadership positions, but he elevated women to a higher status than society ever would have by talking to them in public. This was a big deal when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well. 
It wasn't common, wasn't norm for men to address women in public. And Jesus says, she's got value. She needs salvation. I'm going to talk to her. By using them as examples of faith, by teaching them theology, taking support from them. One of the biggest reasons or one of the biggest evidences for the resurrection is that the biblical accounts have women discovering the resurrection first. The implication is that if it was made up, you would have never written it with women finding out first. Not in that society, because you lose credibility that way in that society. You would have never made that up. If you were trying to orchestrate the resurrection, you're standing back and saying, Jesus is dead, the movement's going to stop, we got to get this going again. Let's make up a story that he came back from the dead. And in doing that, let's make up a story that women find out first. No, no, he would have been booed out of the room. We can't have that. Nobody will believe that. Jesus elevated women when society was seeking to bring them down. There was great value placed upon them. And then through the instructions of Paul. Paul wrote extensively on leadership and organization of the early church. He was very specific about the roles of men and women in the body of Christ. I don't want to take too much time in reading these. I'll give you these passages if you want to kind of look look at them later. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3 through 16. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 through 36. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. 1 Corinthians 11, 3 through 16. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 36. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. All these passages have to do with the roles that women play in the church, specifically that they're, they're, that they're what we would believe called not to teach within the church from an authoritative leadership standpoint. And in all these cases, they go back to Genesis for their reasoning behind it, right? When Jesus was asked about marriage, he went back to Genesis. When he was asked about divorce, he went back to Genesis. When Paul was asked about gender roles within the church... He goes back to Genesis and says, here's how it should look, and here's why it should look that way, because of how God created it, how God made it. I think it's important to note that Paul recognized that a woman's ability to teach exists, and he allows for women to learn within the church, something that was culturally unthought of at the time. All right, so Titus 2.3 talks about women teaching. Proverbs 1.8 Proverbs 31, 26, when you see the, the role that the Proverbs 31 plays, she's a teacher. Right? She teaches her children. So it's not to say that a woman is in, incompetent and in, in able to teach, but that there's a, 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 right, a right way and a wrong way for her to do so. We even see an example where Priscilla and Aquila teach and instruct and disciple together. The implication is Apollos, right? Like my future son Apollos, that cool name Apollos, right? There's another mention for him. Apollos is a guy who loves Jesus, but but wants to know more about Jesus. He's a little bit incorrect, and it says that Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him as a married couple. So in no way is it it meant to say that a woman is incapable of teaching, doesn't possess the same ability to teach as a man. But the gender role distinction would prohibit a woman from taking the authority and leadership within the church because what happens here in the church is really meant to model what's happening in the home. And vice versa, that the man holds the responsibility, and, and, and men, it should be a situation where we say, man, it's sometimes a responsibility we wish we could, could not have, right? Because that's a huge task, to be responsible to the creator of the universe for how my family functions. Sometimes it gets viewed as, well, why can't a woman do that? Why would a woman want to do that? Why would anybody ask for that type of responsibility? Such a huge responsibility. When I talked with Tyson Adam about being elders of this church, one of the first things I said is, you better be ready to stand with me on judgment day and take responsibility for this church or else you can't be an elder. Because the Bible says that. It says that one day I'm going to give an account for the souls of this church and how I cared for them and how I shepherded them. And I said, look, this can't be a power trip. This can't be you just looking for leadership. We're going to stand before God one day. And I remember both of them thinking, why would we ever ask for that? Like the only reason we would want to be an elder here is because we feel compelled by the Holy Spirit that we would be uh, disobedient to not pursue this. Because why would we ever choose to stand on Judgment Day and give an account for this? That's a huge responsibility. God says, Paul says, 
it's a task responsible for, for males within the church. They're the ones that are tasked with this. First Timothy 3, Titus 1, the qualifications of an elder, the responsibility of the church is to fall on the man, just as the responsibility of the household is to fall on the man. Men are called to grow the church, equip the church, and protect the church. Right? Like, that's, that's what we see the elders responsible for. It's, it's very fatherly responsibilities, the protecting of the church from false doctrine, right? We're to protect our homes. We're to grow the church. We're to grow our homes, be fruitful and multiply, that the males take the lead, the initiation of that. And yet we call upon women within our church to serve faithfully and to serve in prominent roles within our church, right? So while we don't have male and female elders, we only have male elders, we have male and female deacons because we believe that there's some, some liberty and freedom in, in what the deacon does in the local church, right? We see qualifications of a deacon. I believe we see qualifications of a female deacon as well. But we don't see a, a, a defining role that this is what deacons do. So within our church, we, we call upon men and women to take the, the, the lead in organizing ministries. And churches that don't have female deacons have female ministry leaders virtually all the time. So really, instead of creating a role that's not in the New Testament, ministry leaders, we call our ministry leaders deacons. And we allow women's, women and men to function in those capacities. And, and we typically call upon women to function in capacities where they're gifted, where they're gifted. So, so Melissa handles our hospitality. She handles the meals within our church. She handles, um, she handles that hospitality aspect that so many women are, are driven to and gifted to, to accomplish. We've got other women that are serving within our church in, in somewhat leadership capacities, but capacities that are designed for their giftedness. You know, we've got, we've got Sarah who helps oversee the, the structure of our, our, of our nursery schedule. We have Jessica that helps oversee the, the, um, the implementation of policies within our nursery. Maggie is starting to function as our church secretary. These are, these are capacities that women typically serve in in the workplace as well. And so we want to honor those giftings, honor those abilities by giving them places to serve here within the church, but maintaining those gender distinctions and responsibilities that God's laid out in his word. All right, we'll close with this. The role of man in work and the role of woman in work. We talked about this last week. We'll close with it again today. Man is called to a sacrificial leadership to serve. Mark 10, 45 says, if you want to be great, then you serve. And so in man, in man assuming responsibility, he is assuming a responsibility to serve, not making demands or getting his way. One author said that in calling man to, to be the leader, it means that our glory dies first. That we're called to serve for the good of others. That our glory, our way dies first. Man is called to initiate, to lead, to protect, and provide in ways appropriate to his differing relationships. Let me say that again. Man is called to initiate, to lead, to protect, and to provide in ways appropriate to his differing relationships. This is a definition by John Piper, I believe. So basically, man is called to do these things, and that looks different based on the women that are in his life, right? So my leadership and my protection looks far different towards my wife than towards a female teacher at Trinity. Now, I'm still called to the same roles of leading and providing and protecting, but it's far more intimate with my wife than with another woman in my life. And yet, as a male, I'm still called to those responsibilities, but it differs based on the relationship, Relationships in the family, relationships in the church, relationships in the workplace. The role of the woman is she is called to respond and to support male leadership in ways appropriate to her differing relationships. Woman is called to respond and support male leadership in ways appropriate to her differing relationships. We talked a little bit about manly men and what it means to be a man. What I, what I see from God's word. Man isn't called to love sports. He's not called to hunt. He's not called to fish. He's not called to be outdoors. He's not called to drink things and eat things. And those things don't define biblical manhood. Instead, biblical men in God's word are fruitful in everything that they do. They're producing good things. They stand guard they take responsibility 
They're repentant versus making excuses. Right? Adam doesn't own up to being a man. He, he, he falls flat on his face by making excuses and pointing at other people. Biblical men are led by their mind and not their eyes. And this in no way imposes certain things and certain restrictions within, the, within their family. In Proverbs 31.15, is one of the first questions that a lot of times gets asked when, when manhood and womanhood and distinctions are talked about is, well, is it okay for a woman to work a job or is she relegated and obligated to stay at home? Proverbs 31 15, talking about the Proverbs 31 woman, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. This isn't a woman that's just sitting at home doing nothing, right? Like there is no, I don't believe there's any restrictions here placed upon a woman that says she has to be a certain way and can't do certain things to contribute to the family. She's the helper. She's the complement. In some families, in some relationships, that means both work and both provide for the family. I believe the 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 main responsibility, the the main initiator, the one that's supposed to determine whether that's needed or not needed, is the male, is the husband. But in no way does it mean that the woman is not able to complement and help and contribute. In certain ways, it looks different in all of the married uh, relationships here. We have some that stay at home, some that are very active in the workplace. Some that maybe even make more money than the husband. And I don't see anything in scripture that would say any of that is wrong. This woman right here is very busy and very productive, and she could probably give a lot of lessons on the productivity that we talked about in previous weeks, about how to get things done in a timely manner, because she is very busy. She's very busy doing a lot of things that I believe complement her husband very well. And that's something that gets worked out in each marital relationship. The husband determines, this is where our family's going, this is the direction we're going. And the wife comes alongside and complements that, and complements it in different ways. It plays itself out differently in all of our marriages. And Lord willing, it plays itself out for the glory of God. Next week, I'm excited as we kind of continue this. Um, we're going to do... Lord willing, we're going we're gonna to have a, a three-part, one sermon. And so basically, um, Tyson, Adam, and I are going to share the teaching responsibilities next week. And we're going to speak for about 15 minutes each. Um, I'm going to speak to singleness and the gifting of singleness and how to maximize your singleness for the glory of God, based on what we see here. Maximizing yourself as a man, as a woman, when you're not married. Um, Adam is going to, or Tyson's going to speak to uh, a biblical view of marriage and what the purpose of marriage is in relationship to Genesis. And then Adam's going to speak to the purpose and the responsibility of parenting um, that flows out of, of what we see here in Genesis. So we wanted to, I wanted to give them an opportunity to speak here um, before this year closes out. And so we're going to kind of share the responsibility next week and tag team it a little bit and, and speak for about 15 to 20 minutes each. And so I'm excited about um, being able to do that together next week. I'm going to close this in prayer real quick, close this time out. And then, like I said, to close out today, I want us to just have an opportunity to share requests that you might have as we approach this week, especially in light of what we've been talking about, struggles at work, struggles that we can pray for as we strive to live out our masculinity and our femin femininity. Is that the right way to say that? I've purposefully not said that because that's a hard word to pronounce too. Uh, as we try to, to live out being male and female this week, that we do so in a way that honors God. And I want us to be able to pray for that if there's specific ways that we can this week. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I want to give you an opportunity to share as we pray together to close. Father, we thank you so much for what you reveal to us in your word. And God, I know that some of this can be difficult because it, it goes against cultural cultural norms, unfortunately, they are being established right now by the enemy. And God, I'm thankful that we can be drawn back to Genesis to understand our gender distinctions and roles and responsibilities that have been given to us. God, I'm thankful that you have equipped this church with males and females. And God, I know that both are gifted differently. And that both are absolutely necessary 
if your image is going to be portrayed properly to all creation. And so, God, I'm thankful for a church that is made up of both, where both are called to serve alongside of each other. And, Father, I'm praying that that the men in our church would embrace their responsibilities. God, that you would call them away from being passive. God, that you would guard us from being abusive and being selfish. And instead, Father, we would be sacrificial examples of leadership within our homes, within the church, within our interaction with others. God, I pray that we would, we would, we would model and mimic the example set for us by Jesus Christ. Father, I pray for our women, that you would encourage them, that you would stimulate them to, to be the godly women that our church so desperately needs. God, that our older women would embrace the responsibility of teaching our younger women. God, that they would embrace the, the high privilege of being a helper, of being a complement, and seeing that ultimately what that means is, is they fill the areas that are lacking. God, help them to see that they're not a duplicate. They're a complement, a necessary complement. God, I pray that as men, we would bestow value upon the women that are placed in our life because they are created in your image. God, I pray that as a church, as we seek to glorify you, as we seek to be the new creations that you're calling us to be, that we would do so from the standpoint and the mindset of gender. We'd be the men that you're calling us to be. We'd be the women that you're calling us to be for your glory, for your honor. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.